One thing I, I try to do, and, and I'm sure the people who work with me are sick of seeing them, is I create these documents called RPMs. The R stands for result. P stands for purpose. Like, why are, why are we doing this? And the M really is just, you know, massive action. And I actually got this uh, concept from a Tony Robbins conference. And it only takes about five minutes to do it. Welcome to Building Bigfoot. I am excited. So this is part two with Lance Schaefer. Lance Schaefer is a personal friend and mentor of mine, uh, a man I highly respect and I honor. He is a uh, one of the founding people in the Kelowna tech scene and has really helped to, uh, I would say, uh, lead lead part of the change that created the uh, the tech scene that exists today in in our little uh, what do you call us the it's it's the it's the Vineyard Valley it's the Kelowna the Okanagan uh, Vineyard the and uh, so in that so we left off the last podcast so if you haven't caught the first episode I highly recommend listening to it it's awesome and we really dive through uh, the um, early journey of Lance and then as we get into uh, his building of Lemon Free. And we're about to move into now uh, going into lot lengths and, and, and that whole next step. But just as we dive into that, we were chatting uh, just briefly um, off screen here, um, off mic, uh, about the difference between the U.S. culture and the Canadian culture in the tech scene. And uh, if you listen to the episode with uh, Rob, we also chatted a bit about that too. And we talked about the fearless abandon of the uh, U.S. culture, the fact that there is this desire to, um, you know, it's almost like a badge of honor to fail, to have that that that, that claim to fame, so to speak. Um, so with that, without further ado, Lance, uh, let's go. Oh, thanks, Jonathan. It's funny, I, was list- I did listen to the last podcast and man, I, I think I'm a, a little too verbose. I, was, I feel bad that you got to have a part two here. I, I definitely ran on forever. I appreciate your patience with the with me, <laughs> but it's awesome to be able to, you know, really, it's, it kind of is an interesting segue because, you know, in 2015, you know, we sold the company Lotlinks and really kind of merged in like almost everyone. It's really remarkable of a story from, in some respects is almost all the team that was part of Lemon Free is still there. And that was eight years ago, eight, more than eight years ago, that was 2015. And so, um, you know, I think that is somewhat of a, rem- I understand now that that is somewhat remarkable when you hear about some of these acquisitions slash mergers. And, and, uh, and so it's been really, really awesome, but it's also, it's, it's been a major pivot in how, like, if you think about the kind of the first part where I was, you know, got three companies on the go, all of them, you know, doing great, but none of them really scaling all of them, great cash flow businesses, you know, I was, you know, highly influenced by, you know, multiple streams of income, that, that book that came out in the 90s and, and Robert Kiyosaki, like this great cash flow businesses, right? And, um, you know, I've kind of been there, done that, you know, it's 19 or whatever it was, 2015. I'm just kind of entering my 40s and thinking, hey, maybe there's something else I should try. Like I've gone through, um, you know, really since I was, you know, 20 years old or 21 years old, kind of, you know, running my own company with partners and, and, you know, leading those and think, Hey, maybe this is, maybe I can learn something here. Like what is, you know, and, and the other thing was, you know, when I met the founders of Lot Links, you know, Len, Rob and Jason uh, really just hit it off. And it, it was obvious that we uh, would complement each other generally just from a skills perspective and, and, but also kind of get along from a values perspective as well. And, 
Um, and so I kind of made the decision at that point to, to, to scale with them really. And they, and to your point, when you said, you know, the difference, at least, at least from my experience between Canadians and Americans, not all Canadians and not all Americans, but I mean, if I could generalize a bit is yeah, that, that willingness to take more risk, to go bigger, to, you know, potentially like make some mistakes that are like Canadians are a little more hesitant on it. And, you know, I think of, um, I remember one time I had a friend in the insurance space and they were talking about, you know, the, the sub prime mortgage crash in 2008, nine, and how it just didn't happen in Canada. And, and everyone's like, oh, because we have great banking legislation. But another thing that was pointed out is Canadians just wouldn't have taken that risk of buying 10 houses. <laughs> and, you know, like, let's do it. It's going to, it's going to the moon, you know? And, and so it's just like, um, Canadians don't default on their mortgages as much, you know, they just don't, you know, uh, or any, any type of loans and, and, you know, we just have more of a conservative culture. I think generally, I don't know why that is. I think it's just, you know, Americans got that swashbuckling kind of, um, you know, uh, you know, kind of, and, and, and I, on my experience is that's generally true. Um, it's not that, uh, it, and part of it could be just the size of the country. Like they have just such a bigger market. So if you're going to, if you're going to go after it in Canada and you've only had Canada as your market, um, and even then we typically kind of separate Western Canada and central Canada, right. Um, and Eastern Canada. So you, you, you generally just don't have to think that big because you're like, okay, well, there's like 5 million people here, 8 million people over there. And it's like, versus like, Hey, there's 400 million people and they're all connected. You know what I mean? And so, uh, you know, again, I'm not entirely sure culturally why that is, but it certainly is different. And, um, it's been really fun. The, I guess back to the, the thing for me though, like, uh, you know, specifically was I carved everything else off. I was like, Hey, if we're going to scale this, I can see that it's going to need my full time and attention. And that's even one of the reasons, you know, um, you know, and I miss it a lot, um, you know, doing the mentoring at Accelerate Okanagan and stuff we do with you. One of the reasons I had to pull away from that is I said, Hey, I'm committing to seeing what my full time and focus would look like, you know, in a, in a single company, which I'd never done in 20 years. So it really was um, a, a mind shift for me in terms of scope and focus. Uh, and so it's, it's, and it's been a, an awesome ride. Yeah. That um, is really interesting. Like that is a, that is a big shift, right? Because you're moving from um, where you're, you're moving into a place where you're, you're thinking strategically, but you're also um, you're also putting a lot of dedication, time, focus into it. You know, stepping back to the culture a little bit, what did you notice? I mean, you were already working in the U.S. a lot. Like you were you were at the FA conferences. You were part of the like uh, for a long time, um, even you know before we were. And and, and so you were you were very much um, a part of that. So I think you probably carried a little bit of that <clears throat> DNA already inside of you. Um, but f- just from your observation, being part of um, Lotlinks, like what were some of the things that you observed right away where you're like, okay, this is this is a ride. This is going to be interesting. Yeah, so, and that's a good point. I mean, really, with the exception of the early or mid-90s, all of my, all the p- customers I've had, almost all of them, are, have been American or even worldwide. It was, you know, every, you know, affiliate marketing, all that kind of, that kind of stuff. So yeah, no, it's not like I hadn't, I'm not familiar with working with Americans, but more like in a um, customer basis, not on a kind of like internal basis. Um, and so the, so, you know, for, you know, to give you an idea, um, 
you know, I was very slow to hire, for example. Like, so like when we, um, when we merged companies, I think we had maybe a dozen people, right? I mean, it was, you know, and that company was 12 or 13 years old at that point. It's like one new hire a year, right? And it's like, let's just keep it, you know, slow and steady and all that. And, you know, it wouldn't be out of the realm for, you know, at Lawlings for us to just, you know, say, okay, we've got 10 positions open. We've got this project. We think we're going to, it's going to be awesome. And we just go out and, and hire, you know, and I remember that very early on with hiring 10. I'm like, I've never, it's, t- it takes me a year to hire somebody. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I'm so selective and, and I'm waiting for the right reference to come in. And, and it wasn't like we didn't have money to hire. We just, just like, it just was like, Hey, let's just, and it was like, no, no, let's, let's just, Let's just see what we can do. And, and that is really different a mindset that I find that I hadn't seen before, which is awesome because it, what you do is, it, you know, like we talk about this fail fast kind of concept coming out of like, you know, Silicon Valley. And, and, and it's interesting because I wouldn't say that when we do that, we really ever, I mean, it's like that whole concept of are we failing? Are we learning? Um, you know, generally it's either a, a great success or we learn something great and just pivot into the next thing. And so, you know, that has been like, and so it accelerates things um, because you can, things that are just like a twinkling in your mind are very almost instantly being acted upon. Uh, and, and versus like, you know, hey, I've been sitting on this idea for a while. I might, you know, run a couple of tests, you know, with some excess time that we have with a couple of developers or marketers or whatever it is into like, hey, let's just try this at scale. And if it doesn't work, we'll just pivot into something else, right? And so that's probably like the, lar- that, again, that's internal. And, and that's really like that, that pace of growth and scale and that ability to say, let's just see what we can get done here or, you know, let's act on it now. And that is, that is certainly was jarring. I'm used to it now. It's been eight years, but it, it was jarring at first. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, that... Um... That's interesting. So when you when you hire quickly, because um, yeah, I remember you've you've shared a little bit with me um, some of those those fun hires, where um, you know as a, as a company, you're very intentional about growth. So you're like, okay, we need we need a strong team around growth. So let's let's hire a team around growth quickly. Um, and so when you bring on that many people into the team, it, does culture matter? Like, do you are you bringing them into your culture? Are you trying to find people who already have the culture or are you looking more at the strengths and talents around uh, achieving the objective or is that the culture? Yeah, it's, uh, that's a good question. So what, uh, you know, certainly with our product and technology team, um, we are looking for, we do two sets of kind of two streams of, of uh, interviewing while we're recruiting. And the first stream is culture fit. And that's actually more important. Um, than uh, talent fit. Uh, so, because I mean, ultimately, if someone's really talented and they don't fit in culturally, not only is it bad for you know our company, it's actually bad for them. Like they're just not having fun. They're just like, you know, it's, we're kind of probably making them grumpy. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, hey, this is like, you know, uh, you know, for example, we move fast, right? And some people just uh, can't move, especially when we're hiring in Canada. It's, it's a shocker. You know what I mean? Like for some people. Now, some people like uh, the neat thing is, is some Canadians are kind of like me. It's like, oh, finally, the company is moving fast. You know, like I've been working. <laughs> and, then, and, they, and they fit in, you know, perfectly. And so that, you know, moving fast and is, is, is 
you know, a core value of ours. And, um, and, and so that's, you know, what we do is we usually, let's just say it's a technical interview, like for a developer or a data scientist or something like that. We usually have someone who's been with the company a long time. It could be myself or someone who's been around a long time. And, and we ask questions that would try to indicate behaviorally, you know, will they like it here? Like, will they fit? Will they be stressed because of this? And the speed is just one aspect of the of culture. Like, I mean, there's other aspects of the culture as well. Um, but the, but, you know, will they, you know, will they like it here? <laughs> like, I mean, and will they, you know, like, so, and then if they pass that, um, kind of, no, it's not a test. It's just, if, if, the, if that screening looks good, um, they move on to the technology tests if they're technologists, right. Um, you know, or other, other types of interviews where we're kind of looking at hard skills. Um, we rely on a couple, uh, you know, once, once candidates get, Deeper into funnel, we do some kind of standardized testing um, uh, around, like, I don't know if you've ever heard of DISC. Um, the DISC analysis and uh, Strengths Finder from Gallup are the two kind of like, you know, the, the, those tests kind of give a sense of strengths and, and behavioral. And then um, we also, and then we might do a technical test. If it's a Java developer, we would test their Java development skills. Or if it's a data scientist, we give them a problem or, you know, those types of things just to get a sense of their, of their technical skills as well. So it kind of moves from culture down and into the pipeline of, of skills. And um, it's a lot of work, I mean, but it's, it's worth it because, um, you know, not to say we've, you know, never had people, I mean, obviously once in a while we get, we don't get it right, but generally speaking, I feel like we get it right more than we get it wrong. We're always trying to improve there, obviously, but it's, it's, uh, it seems to work for us. Yeah. The, the disk task is, is, Super interesting. That's the one I'm, I'm fairly familiar with. I did another one recently. I'm trying to remember the name of it. I found it super insightful for me personally. So I, I've done the, you know, done the strengths finder one as a team. That was great because you have the four different categories and you can see like when you have a team, you really fill out all four categories, but you can quickly see if, it, you know, if you're a team of individuals, how that can be a big problem because you know, m most individuals, at least from uh, when we did our test, they all seem to fall into one of those categories. It's kind of rare to find somebody who's got strengths in all four. So mine, um, yeah, mine definitely fell more inside of one category. And and it, th that was really interesting. As far as the disc one goes, um, the th I know from the development side, and this is interesting too, because if you get somebody who's high D, somebody who makes decisions really quickly, most developers tend to fall into, I'd say, like the high C category. I don't know if that's what you've observed. High C, low I, uh, they don't necessarily want to be on the stage. Um, they much prefer to be behind the scenes, uh, analytical thinking about things. Um, but then you get a high D developer um, who happens to be our now our CTO. And it's interesting because he makes decisions fairly fast. And sometimes it's like, um, I'm like, was that too fast? <laughs> but he's also, I mean, he's, he's brilliant, right? So he, he can, um, he thinks through things quickly and he's able to come to solutions. But um, yeah, how do you, with the development team, being the fact that most developers are high C's, probably S and C, um, meaning that they're steady and they're conscientious and they're thinking through all the problems and they're thinking through everything. How do you, you have a culture where it's about, um, speed? Because that's one of my core values, I think is, is 
um, you know, um, along other things like having like health, um, uh, you know, uh, treating people well, like these are definitely core values of mine. Um, yeah. How, how do you, yeah. Like how do you the, do that? yeah. Like, I mean, there's, um, yeah. Once you're in a development environment, yeah, you typically, you know, it's, there's a, there's a tension between speed and, and accuracy, I suppose. And, and people who are high in C value accuracy, people who are high D value action. Right. And, you know, the reality is, is there, I, I don't know of any kind of software company that doesn't have that tension. Like I don't, and I think the key is to, to acknowledge it, like, and just say, Hey, listen, like it's, we get, we're moving too fast. We know, we get that we're creating technical debt and really saying, but what are we going to do about that? Like, I mean, how, how, what kind of agreement can we get to? Can we stop from time to time and address technical debt or can we stop from time to time and, or, you know, do a sprint uh, on it or, um, and, and so those are, I, I, it is difficult because the other thing too, um, one of the interesting things that I've noticed when in a scaling company is there is still in a startup, you really have to move fast because um, you have to get product market fit quickly. You run out of cash, right? And so like, because you don't have customers yet and you have expenses and, and just getting a sense of, is there a there there with what we're building and, you know, building it really tight and strong is not as important as like, literally, is there something here? So the product people or the CEO usually is the product person at that point is saying, I just need to get something to customers, like, you know, based on our vision or hypothesis, you know, and so it's like, it's just technical debt everywhere. Like you got full stack developers who are basically about a six out of 10 in every area, except for maybe one. So they're building the databases, they're doing the front end, they're, they're doing the middle and back end, you know, tier layers of, of development. They might even be doing the data science. They might be doing, you know, the whole thing. Right. So, and, and no one is, no one can be, unless they're a genius. I mean, it can be absolutely a 10 out of 10 and all that stuff. I don't care who you are. Um, so, you know, ultimately you have this huge bias to action and that's why most CEOs or, or, or founders are, like you said, high D, there's like, let's go, let's go, let's go, right? And so then what happens is it's great because hopefully you do find product market fit and then you've got something you're like, okay, we can scale this thing. And so that's when you have to basically start saying, okay, well, if we're going to scale, we do need robustness in, in technology systems. And you start to rely on these people who are highly, you know, um, you know, like high C developers who are like making sure that the, you know, the, the thing isn't crashing every three hours or has the ability to, to scale um, to thousands of customers, you know, those types of things. And, and all of a sudden you have to start to value that more, right. Than you did in the startup phase. Now in a highly mature company, it almost, I feel like, and I've, I've never really worked for a lot of higher, a lot of super mature companies, but there are customers sometimes, and they're like really on this other side of it, like saying, Hey, we've got thousands of employees here. We can't just like hack away at this stuff. Right. Which, you know, okay. And so, you know, the, the, the weird part, though, is, you know, I've read that, all, you know, if you take a look at the, the workforce in, say, America or Canada, and don't quote me on these numbers, but I read this a while back, but if you take a look, like, something like 40% of people work for companies that are 10 or less, and then, like, 50% of people work for, for companies or organizations that are, like, are 500 and more. So this space between 10 and, like, 500 employees is actually, like, a minority of people. 
like don't they don't work for those. And the reason is generally speaking, they either get up to that scale or they just don't can't scale up and they go back down or just disappear, right? And so so it's actually hard to to find or to, to find people who understand that it's not quite a, a fully formed because you're often hiring people from those fully formed companies and they're trying to bring that into the company because that's what they know. That's what they've been, they've been told to do in these big companies. And that's too slow. <laughs> it's too slow for a scale up. It still has to move a little too fast. Or you bring these startup folks who are like, ah, screw it. Let's just, let's just, uh, let's just keep on building some, some new stuff and never mind. Like let's get some new features out and going. And that's too fast and it breaks things because you can't scale. And so you, you have to really, uh, it's like an art trying to figure out, and this has been one of my huge learnings. Like I had no idea because I've always been in that 20 or less employees kind of category where you can just launch and do whatever you want at any time you want. You come up with an idea in the morning, you're testing in the afternoon, right? And, and you know, and again, um, and I think that's where, you know, when we read about these scaling up books and, and you know, people talking about scale ups, that is really hard from a talent perspective because it's unless someone's been part of one. I think that's why often people like you think about investors, they love investing in founders that have scaled up something because it's like they kind of get the roadmap, not the roadmap from product market fit. That's in the startup category. Right. But the roadmap in that actually like how do we kind of piece this together to scale? So it's it's really uh, been kind of like fascinating for me actually to, to be part of that and, and see how that works. That is really interesting because, yeah, you're right. It's such a different skill because getting product market fit for a lot of people is really a big challenge. I find that really fun. It's it's super um, interesting. Uh, it's it's something that you know, I, I just get. I I, I kind of I understand that now. And um and it and it's fairly like you can actually start to execute on that in a playbook manner where. Um, you can, you can really think about things like, okay, um, what are the trends of the market pointing towards? Okay. Like let's say two years ago, three years ago, uh, Apple releases iOS 14.5. This is a big change. All of a sudden attribution is ending. You have Google saying, we're going to destroy the pixel. Um, we're going to go to a cookie browser. You have other, um, industry players kind of working the same. You can pretty quickly say, okay, the trend here is that there's going to be a significant problem around um, tracking data, attribution. How do you um, how do you manage um, analytics in a cookieless browser? So you quickly see that this is the trend that's that that the market is going towards, and then you look at all the customers who are going to have that kind of challenge, and then what are the products that need to exist before that trend hits, and so for me, that's like a pretty easy thing. The The next challenge, which I think is a really hard challenge, um, but some other people like yourself are, you know, are really good at this, is how do you, um, and you're really good at the first part too, because you, you really coached us through that journey uh, back in the day. And, but now you're, okay, how do you take this idea that is the right time, right place, um, right market, the customer loves it. Uh, you look at your, you can, you can quantifiably uh, see the metrics. People are like, yeah, this is eight, nine, 10 out of 10, as far as value to my life. Um, I would never want to lose it. But now you're, you're suddenly it's, it's, it's a different execution model, right? So you, you have to be able to hire faster. You have to have systems in place so that people can plug in, but not so much 
like you say, that you're now a GE where everything is, yeah, going through quality. Yeah, yeah. Like you're not, you're not there because that, that itself is a, um, would be too much inertia because you, you really need to get to market quickly. It's all about speed of execution. So what would be some of the lessons that you've learned um, that have enabled you to do that? You know, the, uh, yeah, like a great question. You know, it's funny as you're saying that, you know, it's, um, if you think about just kind of the problem, like let's just say in startup, you're, um, let's say the CEO is the salesperson, right? And then eventually you hire your first salesperson. And if they're, you almost can double sales because as long as that second salesperson is sitting beside the CEO and they're just like, they watch the CEO and they just like, okay, I see what you're doing. I hear you, what you're saying. I'm a great salesperson and now I can, and all of a sudden you can almost like double sales. And then you get your, you get another salesperson on, on board. They plug in and there's three, the CEO is still selling a little bit, but got a lot of other work to do. And luckily this other salesperson's covering. And now you got, and, and so this, these, and then at some point it's like, they almost can, you know, bring on them similar numbers. Right. So the, but what happens in scale up is you can say, well, okay, well, let's just say our sales are, you know, hundred million a year. Why don't we just double the amount of salespeople and make 200? It just doesn't work. It doesn't work. And so that's the crux of the, why doesn't it work? Why did it work then? And why does it work now? Right. You know, markets there, product scalable, you know what I mean? Why doesn't it work? Same thing with developers. You know, you can say, okay, now you got, you got your initial, your founding CTO, you know, your founding technologist, uh, building out every, the database, the front end, the back end, the middle, middle end, like everything, you know, doing tech support probably too. Right. And so the, and then it's like, okay, well, let's get one more person. And generally it just takes that pressure off and you've got like, now you're perfect, but you can't just say, well, let's light up 10 teams, 10 scrum teams and, and, and we have 10 now let's light up 10 more in the next year. And it should, we should double our production. It just doesn't work. So the question is, so the, that, that was what I realized. So I realized that it's just like it's and, and it's not just in technology, it's in every part of the organization. You can't just double sales by doubling the amount of salespeople for whatever reason. So so the the that's that was kind of the insight that I had. And I mean, I kind of knew that because it's not like people have ri- haven't written about this problem before. This is not, you know, this is not it. And so basically what I'd say, at least for the product and tech side, is you do have to um, adopt, you know, really kind of more of that and i know there is a scaled agile uh, for enterprises that exist but it's i don't subscribe to that model so much but some sort of agile system that that is um loose enough to allow that people to come in and kind of onboard quickly and get new stuff going but tight enough that they're not like i don't even know where to find you know, I don't know how to even like load up a server at this company or I don't even know where to find anything. I have no concept at all. And that, you know, really comes down to, um, you know, these systems that are very specific in every area of the business that, that are, that are, are not tight like these, like a, like a GE, like you said, but not insanely loose, like just, Hey, sit beside the CEO and listen to him sell and, 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 you know, you should be good and going in about a week. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's like, it, there's, and I, I would say, honestly, like what I've learned is that it's, it's, you kind of have to just look at your own company and say, how do we get there? You know, and, and, and it's, it's, it's again, this combination of some documentation, what I, you know, generally I like the agile just manifesto where it's like, 
you know, the, doc, the, doc, the, the um, documentation isn't as important as the process itself. You know what I mean? Where, you know, the process of like, okay, we've got a new person. Where do we, where do, where do they sit? And where do they, you know, you know, do we pair them up with someone? Do we do that? And, and just bringing in kind of those scaled agile practices. Um, but I do think that every company is, should have a different way of doing that. And I think, you know, um, you know, I, I'm not saying I, we've got the best way yet. I mean, it, but it's it, every company needs to have their own way to do that. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, no, that balance is really important. So it's I, I was thinking about that, too, because you're hiring people for their intelligence. And so you don't want to be saying, OK, here's the um, here's the not just the system, but like here's the form- formulaic process that I want you to follow no matter what. Like you want people to be able to scale you from where you are to where you're going. And that requires a certain level of freedom to innovate, freedom to explore. But then you also have systems that you know are now effective. So you you want them to be able to execute on those systems and understand how to do it within the context of your team and your company and your organization. Like, so you need you need to have that. And that makes a lot of sense. I'm, I'm kind of... Um, thinking back what you just said, it's, a, it's like you need to have a playbook that gives the, um, you know, almost like I'm thinking you got a, uh, uh, you know, NFL team, you got the head coach, you have the head coach has got his playbooks, he's got his plays, but then he's giving him to his assistant coach, you know, these are senior members of his team, and but they have the freedom to then figure out their own programs within that, that they want to really execute on that they know is going to take the you know, QB from from good to great. That's going to take the receivers and the linebackers from good to great. And so they they have that flexibility and that coach trusts them to execute on that and to bring their own wealth of knowledge to the table um, and maybe try a couple of things out that they haven't done before just because they haven't maybe taken the team quite to the level that they're, they're about to, which is maybe they're wanting to go to the Super Bowl or uh, something else. And yeah, so that, that makes a, a ton of sense. I had another question for you as well as as we were um, chatting, and that was in regards to so you've got this um, you you've got this uh, this company that that's growing quickly. You're onboarding people. Uh, we went through the the, the question around um, culture and talent. Um, you know, driving. Okay, so when you go to scale up sales um and you're you're executing on that what have you found like do you find that there's there's certain channels that just reach reach maturity or do those channels continue to grow up like to grow um forever or do you just have to keep working on those channels to find what that opportunity is yeah and you know in full disclosure jonathan i'm not highly involved in, in the, in the sales organization. So I'm kind of, I kind of see it from afar a bit, but what I've observed is, yeah, like it's kind of this, the latter. Um, you just consistently keep working the, the, the channels. I mean, you know, and, and, and working and, and developing those channels and, and those relationships, it's, you know, more of the latter. I think the, um, you know, the, at least like, I mean, we're in the automotive space, you know, you're in real estate, the, these are massive, 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 you know, categories, right? I think automotive is the third or fourth largest. Yeah, I'm sure real estate might be the first. I don't know. But the uh, first or second, I mean, there's pharmaceutical. There's not, not many industries that are as big, right? Now, we just have a little piece of that. You know, we're not building cars like Elon Musk or anything like that. 
that. But I mean, we're in that we're in that space. So there's a just there's a ton of development that, that you can do in that space. Like there's so much greenfield around there. Like I mean, in the United States alone, there's you know twenty thousand branded dealerships, and you know another. 30,000 thing independent dealers or something like that. So, so like there's really like almost an endless and you're just consistently nurturing and building those markets. And it's so big. And I guess that's one thing I've learned about the U S market. It's so big that you can, you just develop and develop and develop basically in those areas. Yeah, no, that, um, that makes sense. Now, another question I had at what was interesting was like an insight is um, so in the development team, you were talking a little bit about technical debt and um, you know, one of the, the, I, I recently watched a talk by a guy who was, who was um, you know, discussing technical debt and it was one of the best talks I ever heard on it because what he looked at, he said, a lot of times we misunderstand what technical debt is. We think it's um, you know, we think it's because, you know, programming is, is like version one or it's like an like a, you know, an archived version that uh, nobody's using anymore. But it turns out you can actually run um, different uh, algorithms on on the Git repo. And so, for anybody who doesn't know, Git repo is where you can store your code and it allows you to give a place to access that code. And you can actually see how many times those those app, like parts of the application are getting pull requests and push requests. So you can see just how much that code is being. Um, uh, interacted with by developers. And one of the, the common misconceptions is that you can, um, you can like every developer is equal in a team. So if you have somebody who's not from a technical background, they're not from a product background, they just look at a team and they're like, oh, well, we'll just replace that guy. One developer can have touched 90% of the application. And even in a massive organization like Facebook, and it's it's pretty remarkable that the amount of um, technical knowledge that comes with each and every single one of the senior developers. But what you'll see is that if you look at the code base, you can actually see hotspots. So you can see areas of the code that are being touched on maybe 50 times a day in some cases uh, by different different members of the team. And so those are the areas where you're going to get the the um, basically the the heavy lift is that it's a little bit of work that goes into optimizing that code but it's going to have a significant impact on the efficiency of the rest of the organization. Um, but one of the things that they can also look at um, by running, um, by basically running the code through a series of tests is they can look at code complexity and they can see like, okay, is that code actually complex or is it that it's just not well documented or is it that the developers are just not familiar with it? And um, what they did is they, they, they took a bunch of... Um, so in, in this case, this was a very specific example. He was brought onto a team uh, to help with their, their technical debt. And um, the developer said, oh, yeah, we're going to rewrite that application. It's not, we're not even going to bring it as part of the, you don't even worry, like, looking into that. We already know it's, it's technical debt. And he's like, okay, well, why don't I just, you know, analyze it anyways? Just to, to yeah, but, you know, that was, that was the old code. You know, like, that was, that was from before our time. And he's like, okay, no problem. I'll just I'll just test it anyways. So he ran it through and and he looked at the um, how technical that code was, how complex it was, and how it was written. Was it written in a way that was easy for other developers to program and work with? And it turns out that it was as good as the best code that the developers preferred to work on. And the only difference was that they didn't write it. <laughs> 
And so they weren't as familiar with it. And so the um, the conclusion there is that sometimes te- teams will assume something's technical debt or they'll spend time rewriting old architecture, not realizing that that old architecture is actually really good. The challenge isn't the, the architecture. The challenge is just maybe it's missing some documentation. Maybe it's... Um, maybe the team just isn't familiar with it yet and uh but they will and so focusing on like the one or two parts of the application that's getting 50 developers to access it every single day is where you'll have the heavy lift and so i, I thought that was a really interesting way of looking at technical debt because it, it kind of eliminates the preconceptions around it for a lot of people you yeah that you know boy i mean I and again, I'm no expert on technical debt. The one thing I'd say is like, but I, but I, I think about it a lot, and I hear about it. The one thing I think that you, you know, resonates with what you said to me, and and I think has I've found is what is tech? The, what is tech debt? Is it tech? I mean, you're, it is the definition. Um, code that was not written by anyone who's still at the company. <laughs> like, like if that's the definition, then it's like, it's like that, you know? And so I think the, like, when I think of tech debt, like here are some of the things that kind of like I hear about that all get thrown into this tech debt kind of like, you know, monolithic definition, you know, which is like, you know, like, you know, dependencies, right? I mean, there's like this code, it'll yeah, upgrades that have to happen, you know, like it's like, you know, different, you know, upgrades to, you know, a new version of Java or a new version of, you know, obviously in the DevOps infrastructure world, right? Um, A required migration, like GA4, like, man, that was a huge project for us. Like, uh, was that tech debt? Because if if we didn't do it for July 1st, like half of our reporting goes down. So I guess it's tech debt, but it's forced, again, that's kind of like a required migration. Um, we're doing, you know, SOC 2 compliance works, you know, for some of our larger customers need that level of, of, you know, compliance and security. It's not, none of it is customer facing, right? It all happens and it it doesn't happen. But I think, and, and, and I wouldn't, I would say this is probably an area that I haven't done a great job on as a leader is, is trying to define what exactly is tech debt and, and, and in, in the, in the realm of our own company is, code that like to your example code that wasn't written by anyone who exists in the company more is that actually tech debt you know or is it something else like it like the test that you ran on that code and it's uh it's not a you know tech debt is like one of those things where i think people start talking about it and like most people in in leadership kind of almost like kind of revolt because they know it's something that's not going to help not quote unquote go directly to customer and i feel that's how i feel usually when i hear about tech debt but it's like it's like when I think about even like debt, you know, household debt, it kind of kind of revolting too. You know what I mean? It's like, oh my god, like, yeah, let's not talk about that, honey. You know what I mean? Like, it's not fun. It's like it, uh, the name itself is kind of like, um, but if if you ignore it, just like just like household debt, it always kind of you kind of have to pay for it in some shape or form. Now the other thing too is like some debt is good. We all have mortgages on homes, and you know, and like I mean, it's not like you know you live your life. I mean, very few people would say I've never, ever had debt or see any use for debt. I mean, that's not true. Like, I mean, if you want to raise your family in a house, be, you know, basically you could save up for 20 years and then by the day they'll move out and now you have enough money for a house. Like it makes no sense, right? You got to have debt. So I, tech debt itself is a, is a, is a tool to leverage something for the future, right? Is there product market fit? Is there, is there, they're there with these features? Are there, you know, the, you know, so 
So, it, you know, you can't say, well, let's just not have tech debt. I mean, it's just doesn't, it's not, it's like saying let's not have any debt in, in life. You know, it doesn't exist. So it's, um, like I said, that's a, that's a really interesting topic. Um, you know, just, it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big topic, but, it, but I agree with you. I think that it, it needs to be defined internally because otherwise every developer has their own definition. Um, and the worst definition, um, I shouldn't say the worst, it's just that otherwise what will happen is, is that you get a third party comes along and has their own definition of it and ends up like I've the number of rewrites that I've observed other companies go through unnecessarily um, because they didn't understand what it was. And that rewrite slowed the companies down much more than a year because the world is moving so fast, right? Like, would you rather spend your year working on AI or would you rather rewriting some like archaic part of the application that the client's never going to see? And it's because the developer prefers to work in a certain way. Um, and this applies to non, um, non-development um, bias as well. Like, so uh, I was recently part of a conversation um, where a lot of like, I would say very high level um, uh, CEOs were discussing because they're trying to figure out, they just brought, this guy asked the question, he brought on a new CMO and the CMO was asking if they could move their, um, their, their marketing stack to HubSpot because they felt like they didn't have the flexibility that they required um, from this other this other stack that they had, and um, and it was a valid question, right? But their prior CMO that they just had for a year and a half had moved everything off of HubSpot to this other um, this other marketing stack because they felt that HubSpot didn't give them the flexibility that they need. So he's like, I just spent, I've just spent hundreds of thousands of dollars or more on this migration i is it like did we make a mistake like our cmo is saying everything's wrong and the other um uh it was interesting listening to the like being part of the conversation because um other cmos were saying oh you know what we actually went through the same journey and we had the same thing but a lot of times cmos are changing every couple of years and each cmo has a bias towards what they prefer to work in and you probably find that you have all the flexibility you already need and the one that you've recently invested in. Uh, it's just going to take a little while for the new CMO to kind of um, become familiar with it. And that's that's really um, the change. And that same bias will happen like with, uh, I think, almost any um, company. It's something that's very relatable. It doesn't matter um, what kind of company it is. It's like if you hire new senior team members, they have things that they maybe prefer to work in. And, uh, but if you like, in this case, would you rather that CMO is, is like implementing a whole new stack or would you rather that CMO is implementing a strategy to get them to more market? Like what's going to have the long-term big benefit for the business? Yeah, that's a, you know, it's interesting. Like migrations, you know, and you see this, I think with any type of talent that's intellectual, um, and maybe, maybe only because I've worked in that. I mean, I you see with sometimes you see with lawyers, they want to they only work off their own work. You know, now interestingly, they always want to craft their own work, but they always are critical of like someone else, someone else's lawyer's work, right? Not because, it, and I mean, like, would that legal work hold up? Probably. <laughs> like it's like it was written by a lawyer, and I mean, unless it's absolute garbage, but that doesn't usually happen. 
Um, you know, and same thing with anyone who's used to a tech stack, for example, right? And and you know, you know, back to kind of interviewing, like we try to get, you know, we we let everyone know what our tech stack is because it's like it's not we're not really we understand that there may be cases, and we've done a couple migrations over the last you know, five years where literally like the tech stack wasn't one piece of the tech stack wasn't holding up to scale like that, you know, um, you know, and so, you know, I'm thinking about some sort of like indexing system we had to move in it and it sucks because you're not getting any net new, uh, no value out of it. Like, but you, but you have to do it. You know, it's kind of like this GA4 migration too, right? I mean, it's like, we're not getting a whole lot of net new value out of GA4 than GA3 you know, or universal analytics, but it's, but you had to do it. And, you know, you've got all these, you know, people working on it instead of working on stuff for your customer, you know what I mean? Or working on stuff like AI or whatever, the things that are actually going to move the needle. And, you know, I think this is ultimately why, uh, you know, like if you think about just the general ecosystem, there's always going to be startups is because, you know, scale ups and especially mature companies can get, if they have a leadership that is focused on, you know, that side side you know side of the pie you know what i mean and and you know my kind of general rule is um you know and or my the rule of thumb is usually comes down to pareto right you know you probably should be spending 80 percent building stuff for your customers and 20 percent like straightening out um everything else on the back end like the tech debt and all those systems things right um and you know i i i think that's an ask you know of course when you when you start, it's a hundred percent, right? There's no tech debt on a startup. That's why they have an advantage. I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of tech companies are spending 80, 90% on that one side of the pie, you know, everything from maintenance and, and risk management, if you call it, you know, kind of as categories, right. Versus, you know, enhancements, you know, or new feature development um, and, and, and those types of things. So, um, you know, I think that becomes, you know, from innovation and that's why the, usually those large companies, end up acquiring right because it's like it's just faster it's like you know what i mean we're just you know you know it, it, you know microsoft you know they didn't acquire open ai but i mean they basically kind of like said hey listen we're not going to build our own this is these, these folks figured it out and it's uh it's it's a it's a, a ratio worth measuring you know like i mean if it, in the in the in the product uh or sorry in the technology development is the percentage of time being spent on you know, whatever those tech debt, that tech debt, um, it, you know, is versus enhancements and operations. Like, so, you know, it's, 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 uh, worth being conscious of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I think like immediately I'm thinking about, um, just as an analogy, like in the real estate world, um, it seems like over the last, I'd say, I don't know, 14 years, I've watched, um, CRMs being treated in some ways like uh, programming, um, you know, new best practices. So, uh, as an analogy, so it would be like one one real estate CRM was the hot CRM. Everybody was trying to go to that CRM, and it was top producer. And then all of a sudden, it was a different CRM. So every agent is trying to switch to a different CRM. And then there was another CRM, and every agent's trying to move to this other CRM. And I've just watched these trends. And it's actually very similar, I'd say, to what happens in in product development because, like, once you've been around product development like long enough, you realize you see these trends come and go. Like, I remember when Ruby and Rails was was like all like 
everything was about Ruby. Remember? Yeah, yeah. And, and then, like three years later, um, these teams were having a really hard time finding developers who were familiar with Ruby on Rails because it did kind of blow up. So all these companies started developing with Ruby because they thought, oh, this is the fastest way to build a product. Turns out, it's the same speed to build a product on Ruby as it is any other framework, and um, or any other language, and and the um, but then the challenge was okay, how many people are actually familiar with this? And you you know we also saw it with uh, so obviously Node came out. Node was a really big deal, and there's certain things that Node does really well, but then a lot of applications that were server side heavy or they were trying to scale were building on Node, and they discovered oh. Node is a horrible, horrible framework for like anybody that is trying to um, to do things from like a, a system standpoint. And they didn't know that, right? And so then I, I know like a lot of pro, like uh, again, back to the rewrites, companies would go and they'd be building on Node and then all of a sudden they'd rewrite the entire application and they haven't even got to market yet. And yeah, and it's just like, because they it was, it was, the, it was the thing that, that was the most exciting at the time. And so that's a, I think any company that kind of goes to that maturity cycle has to learn almost a, um, you know, I've, I made this mistake. Everyone's probably made this mistake at some point in life. Um, but you go through it and you're like, okay, I don't want to repeat that mistake. That slowed us down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, fair enough. And I think we all have to make them in some shape or form in order to really get the lesson. <laughs> as long as it doesn't kill us, right? And, and yeah, but to keep, yeah, you want to just not keep doing it, like to your point and, and, uh, and, and yeah, it's, uh, it's easier said than done. It's, um, it's, it's, you know, there are so many exciting new technologies always being promoted and yeah, it's like, are we, you know, is it really providing the value necessary, you know, and that has to be highly scrutinized, um, you know, and, um, you know, we are in our base kind of language is Java. I mean, it, it, it's been around forever. It's, most every developer I know has, has, you know, generally has some <laughs> experience with Java. So it's been it, like, not to say easy, but it's at least, you know, uh, not, it's, it's not that hard to find people. Like, I mean, and that's a, a blessing. I mean, that our, our CTO co-founder decided to just like, Hey, we're going to do Java. And it's like, it's not as sexy as some of the frameworks out there now, <laughs> but you know what I mean? But it's like a workhorse that just is, you know, there's a trillion lines of Java code up there, right? <laughs> oh yes, I, I avoid sexy. Like Java is a very, very powerful, stable, fast language, right? Uh, and every single computer science graduate has been trained on that's Java. True. And that's true. Every single that's right. Every university, like even in the '90s, we were using Java. Like it was like I think I was in the first year where I took computer science uh, courses. I was the last one to use Pascal, and the year after me, they were using Java. I'm like, oh my god, I'm the last guy. I was literally on the on the uh, on that change, you know, between whatever it was, ninety three and ninety four. Oh, <laughs> and it has benefits that some languages don't. Like it's force structure, it's force object oriented, it's force a lot of things. Like it's really best practices are built in. So, question for you: I was thinking about objectives when you said the eighty twenty rule. I, I love the Pareto's principle. Like it's it truly. The, the, the thought of if 20% of the things that we do account for 80% of the outcomes, why can't we flip it around and just prioritize the 20% once we know better, do better kind of philosophy? How do you look at outcomes? Like when you set an outcome, um, the, sometimes the tendency that I will have is I will set a outcome based on some arbitrary metric. 
And then I'm like, okay, how do we get everyone aligned to make sure that that outcome occurs? Do you think that way or do you think differently? Like what, when you're setting an outcome, what does that look like for you? You know, the, um, one thing I, I try to do, and, and I'm sure the people who work with me are sick of seeing them, is I create these documents called um, uh, RPMs. And so uh, the, the R stands for result, uh, uh, and the P stands for purpose, like why are, why are we doing this? And, um, you know, and the M really is just, you know, massive action. And I actually got this uh, concept from a Tony Robbins conference. And it only takes about five minutes to do. And basically, because results are really, um, results uh, exist in the future. So there's nothing you can do, right? I was like, I'm working really hard on my goals. You can't on setting goals because because a goal doesn't even exist yet. So you can't really work on it now, right? Like if I say, my goal is to, you know, I think of a health goal. My goal is for my blood pressure to be 120 over 80, uh, you know, by you know, Christmas or whatever, I can't work on that right now. It's just a goal. Like it doesn't exist in it yet. And then why, right? You know, why do I want to do that? Like, I mean, try to find your best possible why on it, right? If it's health, it's usually obvious, you know, like, you know, I want to be around to be a a great grandparent or, and see, you know, grandparents or whatever. Like, I mean, you usually can tie it to something like that, but the, and then the strategies and the actions are they, you know, you know, um, in, in there. So, um, I actually, you know, now I'm kind of using the M part of it as kind of like mind captures. Like think about every possible thing that, that you know, to, to get going. That takes 10 minutes, maybe five minutes. If I don't do that, I get messed up because it's like, for whatever reason, the, the structuring those, especially the result and the purpose um, is like the most important thing. And, and, and at some point what you end up finding out if you, if you do it, when I'm really busy and I don't, and I feel like I don't have time to do that, I, I start working on stuff that doesn't matter as much, at least everything matters. I mean, there's unlimited amount of stuff that anyone can do at any given moment. Right. And you know, that finitude of what we can do though, is like what, you, you know, it's the highest value actions. So I'd say like, um, you know, setting goals, Understanding why they why they matter, like is probably you know that, that connects you right to your um, the your brainstem a bit more, and then and then um, you know deciding what you're not going to do, you know that's probably the I always find it's actually easy to decide what to do. It's hard to decide what not to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it's like there's a lot more things that you, you you can't do than you could do, right? I mean, if you look at that, that from that perspective, so what do we not going to do? And um, you know you. It, Every day we decide, time is like the great equalizer because, you know, if, if we're working eight hours a day and a family for and friends and health for eight hours a day, sleeping for eight hours a day or whatever way you structure your time, you know, those are, that's very finite, right? I mean, it's like, you can say, well, what are your, what are your goals? Well, let me, let me see your calendar. I'll, exactly, I'll tell you what your goals are. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, you may not know what that is, but those were your goals. <laughs> you know, you know, if you're, you know, if you're, um, Watching seven hours of YouTube, your your goal must be is much different than if you spent seven hours with your family. I just I just know they must be different. Either that, or the, you're unconsciously doing it, which is scary, right? Because it's like if if you can't. Now, I'm not saying every single thing you do in life needs to be attached to a goal. The goal might be just I just want to sit, you know, have a have a peaceful mind. Well, maybe a half hour of YouTube does that. I don't know. It doesn't matter. That's just a strategy to achieve something, right? 
But I think that that is, you know, being conscious of the goals and always remembering that they only exist in the future. So, you know, ultimately that's why purpose is important because purpose exists all the time, right? And so like the purpose is actually probably should be the driver. The goal is just the indication that you're living your purpose, right? You're living at least for that goal, you know, the, the purpose of the goal, not necessarily your purpose, but but the purpose of the goal. Because at any given moment, we're just living our day to day and the goals are somewhere down in the future. And the moment you hit them, it's kind of like, yay. And then you're like, okay, that's it. It's done. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's, it's, I think connecting goals are important only so that you can connect to that purpose. Lance, um, I want to respect your time. I'm looking at yeah, the, no, I just the feel like I'm running on about that one. So, um, the, uh, yeah. so I, I just want to say you, you are, you, you should be like, I, I'm going to call you the business guru. I, <laughs> you are an encyclopedia of knowledge. I, I love picking your brain because it's like, I just sit and I, every time I ask you a question, I learn something new and I just really appreciate you. you and you're so humble. Uh, you're so humble. Like you always say, oh, I'm not this. It's like the number of like go to market strategies, the good, like the best things I've learned in marketing, I think I've learned through you. And uh, and so I, I genuinely, I, I, I sincerely appreciate who you are and what you're doing. And I'm so grateful that, that you are in this world because it's better for it. And, uh, man, I, I have tons of fun. I really appreciate you. I wish this could be like a five hour episode. I really do. Cause I know we just, we just keep going on. <laughs> yeah, well, trust me, like, I could probably run on for that long. You don't want that, but, uh, no, I mean, but seriously, the, uh, this was really fun, Jonathan. I don't think I've ever done a podcast. I've done automotive podcasts, but this is really different. So, uh, uh, this has uh, been really fun. I really appreciate you asking me. It's been as much fun for me. I, I promise you. And, uh, and I feel the same way. Like, I mean, ultimately most of what I've learned, you know, especially when I was doing more of the mentoring, but even within our, you know, within lot links now is, is to try to, it, you learn in order to try to like, see if you can get, you know, other people, uh, you know, working with you on stuff and, and, and vice versa. So it's actually, I always say, I, I learned more from this than probably you did. So, uh, it's, I, I guarantee that. So I, I, I appreciate, uh, I appreciate that as well. So, um, I listen to my own stuff. I'm like, now I got to follow my own advice. <laughs> <laughs> I, so what I do is I listen to these podcasts now, like again and again, because like every time I like I interview now, I'm going to be listening to you again and probably listen to it again because there's, there's nuggets you drop that I find that I have to listen to it a couple of times where I'm like, Oh, that's so good. That's so good. And then I'm like, I want, I want to ask you, <laughs> so probably, yeah well yeah there. hey listen <laughs> feel free to connect and you know it's funny because i, I uh, i'm laughing because if some of the folks on my tech team hear my uh, thoughts about tech debt i'm sure i'm going to hear a few words from them so i i'll have to send it over to them and be like come on lance you're so like i said I've got to, <laughs> i'll learn from my own uh try to stay true to my own words here <laughs> oh, awesome man appreciate it this has been a ton of fun thanks Jonathan. Yeah.